Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And this is Adam. Uh, we're here with a really awesome guest. We're going to let him introduce himself. Hey. Hello, I'm Kevin. Kevin Steen with Rainbow Street. It's nice to be here. So good to have you. Thank you for doing this. We're excited to learn more about Rainbow Street and what you, you've done that led to the creation of this organization and a lot more that we'll get into. Um, yeah, um, just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about how you started your own practice as an activist um, and how it led to the founding of this organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of hard to it's, to make that into a story because, you know, as it's happening, I'm not noticing how I'm like, I'm on a track to starting <laughs> my own international totally. nonprofit organization. And so sort of looking back, I'm sort of piecing it together and... Um, it's hard to tell. My own practice as an activist, I sort of have a complicated relationship with the idea of activist, actually. I like I hesitate to call myself an activist, partly because this is like paid work and it's protection services. It's it's sort of like it's human services. And so we're providing shelter and referrals, information to LGBTQ folks. Um, all around the Middle East, North Africa region. And so it started as a volunteer thing, um, and I can give you the full story for that in a minute, um, but now it's actually my full-time job and it feels very different since I left my full-time job in the tech industry to do this full-time. And so even when I was doing it as a volunteer, I didn't really think of myself as an activist. It's more just like, I'm just doing what's necessary to like get this particular job done, I guess. Um, and like constantly aware of my own like personal, just like all of the things I still have to learn. Um, and so, so I, I, I guess it's hard for me to think of myself as like an activist because I'm not like on the streets marching and I don't have like 10,000 Instagram followers who I'm like sending on big campaigns or anything like that. Like my work, it's very, it actually looks very quiet like in my apartment <laughs> most of the time but i don't know can i ask like what is your definition of activist and what do you guys what's your kind of thought about that word that's something we've been talking about a lot we touched on it in our like most recent uh episode where we just chatted with each other and i i think of activists like personally i think of activists as like manifesting in a lot of different ways ways whether it's like art practice or community organizing or whether that looks like you're in a protest or whether it's your full-time job or not. I just think of it as like an active and concerted effort that one puts into their own practice and do centering and empowering communities that are underrepresented or actively marginalized or disenfranchised. And in that sense, I would definitely say that like you're an activist, but um, I know that it differs from one person to another. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, having a broad definition like that is, is helpful too. I mean, like centering marginalized communities um yeah i definitely like to think that rainbow street does that so i will put a check next to that one for sure <laughs> any other thoughts about activists yeah so I, I talked a bit about this on this podcast previously but um like i also kind of feel uncomfortable with activists how it's used as like a title as if it's like this career accomplishment that you've achieved or something like that um but a way someone explained it to me alternatively it's like we can think of activism just as an activity that everyone can participate in and mm -hmm. they do it in like lots of different ways not everyone's going to dedicate the same amount of time and energy to it and not everyone's going to do it in the same format and like expecting everyone to be on the streets is both like ableist and um 
like doesn't doesn't really encom- like encompass everything that goes into making change. Um, I I totally get you where you feel weird about it, but I think maybe if we all kind of started thinking about activism differently and not about like these individual activist figures with a bunch of Instagram followers that we put on a pedestal, like maybe we would all feel more comfortable with that term being used in a different way. Yeah, and as we're recording, we're all in quarantine, and it's kind of like forcing people probably to redefine what activism means um, and like what change looks like. Yeah, like mm-hmm. like saying that someone is just doing something from their couch used to be like an insult or a way to like diminish them, but now like what's not done from couch? Now it's like oh, you're, you're <laughs> yeah. being responsible. Yeah. You're being inside. Like all activities are done from people's <laughs> couches. By yourself. <laughs> Oh my god, that is so funny. <laughs> if you're not being an activist from your couch, like, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> like, I'm scared. Um, <laughs> I've, I feel like because of my background growing up in Egypt, like, during the Egyptian Revolution, I get really, really frustrated with this idea that, like, the only valid um, way of being, a, like, a political agent is being on the street. Because I, I do feel like, from my own experience, like, that is one kind of performance and if done alone even in mass quantities it will mean nothing and it can actually be really destructive and so i think of like everything else that we're doing as fundamental to building the kind of values and coalitions as a community that then make like this kind of street protest have any kind of meaning for sure and that's you know there are also a lot of people who just for one reason or another can't get on the streets either like all the time, you know, if we're thinking about Mm -hmm. folks who may not be like fully physically able to, or other just, um, you know, folks who for whom it's not safe to be out on the streets, or it's less safe than it is for folks who are able to go out. So yeah, I definitely I liked I like the idea of having a more inclusive idea of what activism means. And if I'm into that, then it becomes harder and harder to deny that, like, yes, maybe I'm an activist, and I need to embrace that. If Um, you want, no pressure. (laughs) Call yeah. yourself what you want. Um, but however, yeah, how did your practice start? Um, you mentioned that you started doing volunteer work and then it became more of a full-time thing. Yeah, so Rainbow's, like, I've always been just, like, a sort of compulsive volunteerer, for sure. Like, in college, I was really involved in the, like, LGBTQ, like, mentorship scene, <laughs> if that is such a thing. Um, and just spent a lot of time doing like service with like the queer community um, in Los Angeles where I was in school. And then I went, I did linguistics in school and I ended up with this um, really interesting, like very, very, very entry level job at Google doing linguistics there. And it was, I guess it was the fall of 13, fall of 2013, um, I, Oh, I guess other important detail, I studied Arabic in college and I went to uh, Jordan where I learned a lot of Arabic and became pretty good at Arabic and have since forgotten almost all of it. But I <laughs> I did spend a lot of time in Jordan and some in Morocco on just like, you know, if you're an American studying Arabic, it turns out there's just like a lot of like federal funding to support oh, you. Oh God. Which is like so cynical. like. You know, my classmates were all like future CIA agents and State Department people and like petroleum business people and like anthropologists and linguists. Um, and so I was more of the last two are okay. Like, we're okay with those. <laughs> yeah, like I was kind of part of the anthro linguistics crowd of the Arabic students. Anyway, so um, 
So actually, there are like some the bad anthropologists. Some anthropologists are cool. <laughs> And, and linguists too. I don't want to give a blanket like approval of every, okay. <laughs> every. But yeah, it's certainly more like I'm certainly more open-minded with that group than I am with like you know petroleum engineers in an Arabic class. It's like okay, hi. So it was. I was actually like on the bus on the way to work when I got a phone call from a really close friend of mine who is Jordanian, and he had just been like maliciously outed to his family in Jordan and it was like you know he lived in a more conservative part of the country and he and I had gotten like super super close like because I came out to him when I was in Jordan I was not out to any of my Jordanian friends except for him Mm. because I kind of sense like maybe he's queer too like maybe I should share about that with him and see if that's something that we want to talk about I was cautious with it, but we ended up having like a super close friendship around this connection of like he was queer and so was I, and we had so much to chat about. And it was totally, totally devastating when he was, uh, I don't know, it's like a story that has come to be like very familiar to me, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, he had been outed to his family, he was disowned, he was threatened with death and was um, being pursued and sleeping in hospital rooms, didn't have any family that he could trust, didn't have any prospects for leaving the country. He was in a really, really, really rough spot and called me because he had no idea what to do next. And it was a really, like, really sobering wake-up call of like, okay, here I am on my tech bus, like, on my way to work in like one of the richest communities like in the world, like the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And like this is this is not just like a a person who I've never met who I'm hearing about through a news article. It went from being something I know happens sometimes, this like malicious outing and these crimes against queer and trans people in some parts of the world, um, including here in the United States, certainly, to being really real (laughs) like this was my friend like he needed help right now and I had no resources for him Um, and so I it sort of started as a research project like what are the international aid groups or what are the international advocacy groups who might be able to like help him find a solution and um, what I found was that there really was no rapid response like shelter program and that's really what he needed he needed a safe place to just call home for a while while he figured out the rest of his plan and he didn't have that and so until he had shelter he had no like option and so he was just in panic mode like sleeping in hospital waiting rooms and so it started as a research project that didn't bear a lot of fruit um and so i just reached out to a bunch of like friends and family and colleagues and just asked if they would donate to me like personally to support my friend and so i got enough donations to pay to help him get into an apartment and just like send it to him i figured he knows what he needs way better than i do i can just be there for him be a listening ear be sort of just like a friend to help him figure out what he wants to do next with and um, if i can get him some funding to help him get there like great so i didn't really know it at the time but that was the first case for Rainbow Street. So I, you know, in order to better support my friend, I started reaching out to queer organizers in the MENA region. And because I figured there's only so much that I can really understand as Mm -hmm. a, you know, non-Arab person, non-Jordanian certainly, um, and not totally fluent Arabic speaker. 
about what my friend needs. And he needs, you know, someone on the ground who understands the context a lot better than I do. So we recruited a small team of volunteers who could check in on him and help advise on what resources are available to him um, locally and just kind of like, I don't know, be a support group there. And it formed the beginning of this international team of queer organizers who are providing shelter for queer and trans folks who really, really need it in the Middle East, North Africa region. And since that worked for my friend, he did eventually, you know, we got him into safe housing. Unfortunately, like he was in a place where he needed to exit the country. That was the level of danger that he was in. Mm -hmm. Um, Although that's not always necessary. Um, For him, it was. And... uh, we were able to eventually facilitate his sponsorship uh, to get a U.S. visa and come here. And this was, um, you know, several years ago that he migrated to the United States. And fortunately, he is still here and doing great and has a cute fiance and a cat and just does a great job and is like doing really well. I'm amazed by him. And we're like sisters for life. He and I are just like really good mm. friends. Um, thank goodness for that. I mean, like, that's just one of those life defining friendships that you like never forget, you know, but he also, you know, he was a client of Rainbow Street at the very, very beginning before Rainbow Street was really Rainbow Street. So anyway, that's kind of the long story. But the eventually we decided like, yeah, we want to make this an organization that can collect donations and be accountable to our supporters. So we registered as a 501c3 nonprofit and we formed a small board of directors here in the United States because the places where we were organizing in the Middle East, and this is really, really interesting. um, You know, you can't register locally with government in most of the locations where we work. And so the question was like, how do we, how do we make this like, scalable to like to use tech speak like how do we actually make this a thing that can grow and also like remain accountable to the people who are helping us do that if we can't legally be an entity in any of the countries where we work and so we found like the compromise is like okay like we'll register in the united states and like I, Kevin, will do the fundraising and the sort of administrative stuff over here and just do what we need to like keep the organization organized and keep the income coming in. And that will empower the groups in the Middle East, North Africa to continue their activism work and fuel the shelter program that we had been organizing around. And so that's how the structure came to be. And so since, I guess that was like, since the fall of 2013 um, until just the very beginning of 2018, um, I was just doing this as a volunteer, you know, as executive director and sort of was in charge of like board recruitment and fundraising and making sure we have our income. And my colleagues in Middle East, North Africa, you know, fellow activists were running the program and sending reports back. And we were all working really closely on the program work. And I always had a very full understanding of like who is on our list of clients right now and what do they need and how do we get them what they need? You know, do we need to form a partnership with some new NGO who can provide like remote mental health support, et cetera? Like I've been really involved in the program work from the beginning, but I really believe in like trusting the local folks to make those calls and 
it's a very collaborative um, sort of spirit, I think, that speaks to the beginning of the organization, which was like this all-volunteer effort. So I left my job in 2018. Um, I did it for free for a year. And in 2019, we were able to actually like hire me and hire one full-time staff person abroad too. And so we had a, a two-person staff and we've grown to a three-person staff now, two program staff and just me over here still. And it's, it's growing. It's becoming more and more of a thing. We're able to put more queer and trans folks into housing and we're providing like a better and better level of care and getting more and more entrenched in international networks of LGBTQ assistance. Um, so it feels good. And that's sort of the story of like how Rainbow Street became a thing and why I'm involved in it. It's sort of random because I'm not like, I'm not Middle Eastern. I'm not from that region, but it was you know, it's about doing what's necessary and my friend really needed this and it exposed mm -hmm a major gap in the services available for most queer and trans folks. Um, so we're doing our best to fill that gap and working with lots of people who are doing important work too. That's, that's, that's so beautiful. And it's also appropriate. I think like most of the people we talk to who are now running organizations or projects of some kind, like it does start from a personal place or an instance or just a case of need. And it's yeah. it's not about people trying to make the biggest, greatest thing ever that changes the world. It's about people doing what needs to be done and people caring about some community they're involved in. So yeah. um, that's totally appropriate. And it's also really great to see that um, how much you're emphasizing collaboration and that like right. sometimes the biggest thing we could do here is just like the boring nuts and bolts you know right yeah. I, I think that's like an, a really yeah. overlooked part of right. um, what it takes to do quote unquote activism right and respecting the agency of others involved yeah and i'm also really struck by this idea that um resettlement or moving to a western country or so on is not the ultimate goal or like what the operations what the primary operations of uh, rainbow street is because i feel like most of the activist work or the different organizations that i've heard about working with lgbtq arab communities center that and this notion that like one can be lgbt and still be in the region is something that feels very meaningful to me because it's something I think about a lot. I think about how a lot of my friends who did become involved um, in in Egypt and in that in these spaces ultimately like had to leave. And I think about what that means for whether there will ever be a real LGBTQ presence that is represented in the region. And so the fact that that's not what um, Rainbow Street is choosing to center feels very meaningful. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks, um, especially from someone who spent some of your time growing up in Egypt, right? Or did you? Yes. Your, did you spend your entire childhood in Egypt? Uh, I grew up between Egypt and Dubai, but uh, I spent like most of my teen years in Egypt. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, from someone yeah. who grew up in the region, that's really meaningful feedback. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I think like another thing that is really I just has become really important to me in this work is just not being shy and like fully fully embracing my positionality of you know like I'm a white guy with like privileged access to like wealthy circles in the Bay Area. You know, like I'm like a cis white gay guy. I look like a traditional gay fundraiser. I can play that game and you know it's meaningful. I like connecting with our donor community and I like 
being able to show people that they can make a huge difference by working with us and by joining up with us. And so I think like that's one of the most valuable things that anyone in my position can do is sort of recognize like what privilege do you have at your disposal and mm -hmm. how can you use it to its you know fullest advantage and support folks who uh, may not have that same level of access. So that's mm -hmm. an important part for me too. It's sort of like, you know, without that peace, at least for us, like it's a lot harder to have the space that we need to organize and do our projects because it costs money and people need to get paid and we don't want to be running ourselves so thin that the that it becomes unsustainable. We, re we really want this to live yeah. for a long time and work for everyone who's involved. Yeah, use what you got, get that money. Yeah. Um, for <laughs> something worthwhile. Yeah, and on the website, we were reading about the theory of change and we were wondering if you'd be willing to kind of explain what what it is, what that looks like for Rainbow Street? Yes, I would. I'm so glad you asked. Okay, like I have, you know, okay, beginner's mindset. I have learned so much about like nonprofit leadership and I don't think nonprofits are the answer. Like, please don't everyone start your own nonprofit. <laughs> I don't think it's a good most of the time. <laughs> um, it's, it's what I chose to do at the time and we are running with it. Anyway, there, yeah, there's a lot that I've learned about just like nonprofit, just like management and how to sort of get everyone on the same page and how to inquire in your community and make sure that you're like actually meeting a real need. And so this theory of change came about as, um, you know, a necessary look at what is our actual strategy and who is involved and let's define what we care about so we don't end up drifting off in some direction that later comes to look unrecognizable to us. So I was in you know, I was visiting the region, working with some folks on this document last summer. And it really started with just a summit of the entire team, um, like the field team, folks from various countries uh, around the MENA region who, you know, joined for a big call and we did a lot of prep work. And the question was kind of just like, you know, what are the things that are most important to you about this work that we're doing? Like what brings you here? What makes it different from other groups that you could be organizing with? And what do we want to do? Like, what do we want to use this collective power for? And, you know, we took a lot of notes and I brought it back to the board of directors here who kind of took a lot of that feedback and turned it into a one page document. And the result is this theory of change. So it's organized by, you know, like, what is the issue we care about? What's the focus? Um, the issue, of course, is very general LGBTQ injustice um, worldwide. And the focus is the region where we work, which is Middle East, North Africa. And we have, you know, nine strategies of just things we couldn't, things that we can do um, to support that community. Doesn't mean we're doing all of these yet, but they all like fit within Rainbow Street's plans of who we are and what we do. And we also, you know, have commitments to our community, like centering MENA clients um, in the design of culturally, of culturally contextualized programming, um, making sure we're stewarding our clients' survival stories with humility and respect, and also our values, um, equity, dignity, inclusion, and self-determination are really at the core. And we put those at the bottom, not because they're the least important, but because they're like the foundation of the rest of this work. Um, the one I really like, <laughs> I mean, I love all of our values equally, but um, the ones I find myself talking 
about the most are dignity and self-determination. And like so much of the work that we're doing is really just like restoring people's agency to them and giving them back their dignity and including them in the process of like, so what do you want to do with your life and how do we get you there? And also like self-determination ties into that too. We want people to be in a place where they feel like they can have an impact on their own life because that's what they deserve. In one way, it, I don't want to, like, I think that there are a lot of really great um, aid organizations out there who have really similar values and are living those values. But I think the traditional structure is one that is very traditionally service oriented of like, oh, we're going to give you something and you're going to get something in return. And like, that's our relationship. <laughs> But we are very careful to like partner very closely with all of our clients and make sure that they are involved in all of the decisions that we're making and that they are not, you know, taking a backseat to their own path towards self-determination. That's so amazing. Uh, I guess my, to go from the theory of change to then like asking what that actually looks like on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of your operations, you mentioned that most of your clients are you're centering on like giving them that agency and self-determination. And what does that look like in terms of the kinds of operations? You mentioned shelter is one of them, but what are the other things that you offer your clients, your work with your clients to provide? For sure. Shelter is definitely like our signature program. And we want to hold on to that because there are just not, as far as I'm aware, many at all LGBTQ shelter programs in the region. Shelter is our flagship program. We stand by that. We always want to be able to provide like cash assistance for shelter, which is what we've been doing from the beginning. But we've also built out a referral program. So people can reach out to Rainbow Street on our website, um, you know, rainbow-street.org. I really want to get rid of that dash, but it's like there to stay for now anyway. Um, rainbowstreet.org slash help. Anyone can contact us. We'll take your basic details and we'll get back to you over email. And we manage a growing list of resources that we keep available for folks. And most of these resources are, you know, queer centric, you know, like queer organizations are offering them, but many are also just by like traditional NGOs that are not like queer or trans focused, but who we have worked with before and we are confident do provide LGBTQ sensitive services. So I think like that sort of, for lack of a better term, I guess, like concierge uh, referral service, like that's actually really critical. Like some people just have no idea what is available to them. And there may be, you know, a concert of organizations who working together can coordinate like a really great response to this person's need, whether it's, you know, mental health support or travel or, you know, finding a job in the country where they live. Um, there are lots of groups who can help them do that. But mostly they just don't know where they are because so many of these queer groups have to operate in the margins. Um, and so it takes another like queer group to sort of get them in, get their foot in the door and start sending referrals to all of our partners. So we've seen some folks like have some really successful resolutions um, that didn't require them to go into emergency shelter just from us being able to like share their information with folks who actually can help wherever they are. And I was telling Adam too, we've also introduced like an education component because there is a lot of learning to do <laughs> about how to support queer and trans people in the Middle East, North Africa, like by, by more traditional organizations. And so um, we've actually held some really successful trainings in English and in Arabic for just like refugee organizations who support refugees in various ways, um, who may not have specific LGBTQ programming or who just want to 
I guess like increase the quality of their career programming. And so it's cool. We you know are able to teach them about the legal context, but more importantly, just like the experience of queer and trans people and how it's how it's different and why they might not approach that organization for services unless they are very reasonably assured that it's safe to do so and how to send signals that it is safe and just like how to, you know, ask the right questions to fully understand the the picture. Because a lot of these folks have been, you know, like they've been very seriously traumatized and they may not feel safe accessing these resources that they have a full right to access. Um, but with a little assurance and a little bit of just like direct referrals from a queer organization like ours, like that can go a really long way in getting someone what they need. Um, so most often what people are requesting and what they need are, you know, psychological support. A lot of people just, they need some mental health, um, they need a therapist. Like who doesn't need a therapist? Um, and they may need just like peer support too. We have a program we're calling Listening Ears, which partners volunteers, you know, just activists in the region who want to lend a hand to you know, give the beneficiaries a call every once in a while and just like see how they're doing and be a friend. And I'm queer and you're queer and I'm with Rainbow Street and I just want to hear how you're doing. That goes a long way for people. Travel is a big one. A lot of people are really, they come to us when they are in a really desperate situation and they are, you know, fearing for their lives and they want to travel right now. And we have to manage expectations because we are not a travel organization. But if you know, if that is a need, we can definitely refer them to groups who specialize in like the legal and the logistical aspects of that travel. But, you know, we really stress that as a very, very last resort. And expectation management is really big there because some folks imagine that if they can just get to Beirut, they're going to be okay. But like Beirut is not a super fun place to be like a refugee who is a trans woman for one two years while you wait for resettlement through UNHCR, which is not even certain. And so we give people full power to make their own decisions, but we are very careful to make sure they have very accurate decision, very accurate information about what it is they're getting themselves into. And that means connecting them to folks who've done it before. That means just like being really responsive to their questions and being really patient with them and, you know, getting them expert advice on uh, what's available to them. Amazing. Um, I'm curious, since you're kind of, it seems like the first stop for a lot of people and finding other resources, how do clients typically find you? Social media, often, we get, you know, people will find us on Instagram and send us a message and we'll send them our, you know, our form, sort of our onboarding form. Um, people Google us a lot. People, they just find us on Google. And referrals from outside organizations, too. Um, so we often are kind of the last stop. <laughs> like if, uh, okay. you know, if, a, if an organization is, it's kind of hard. We're the last stop in that like, no one knows how to help this person. And so they turn to Rainbow Street because Rainbow Street has this amazing LGBTQ shelter program. And like, we're very happy to help, but we have to sort of understand our limitations. And so we have to end up letting people know that we, you know, we can't actually help them evacuate their, town in Syria right now, or we can't help them. I guess that's a lot of the questions that we get are like, I'm in a really dangerous situation. Will you help get me out? And that's really, really tough. We really want people to be able to get to safety and we will support them if they can, but it's just beyond our logistical capacity to actually help someone exit that situation. And so 
setting that expectation super, super clearly becomes really important. And so we have to do it with the referral organizations so they're not irresponsibly letting people think that I'm going to refer you to Rainbow Street. Rainbow Street's going to get you out of this because we can't always do that. Um, and that's sort of what I mean by we're like the last stop is we're often seen as like the last resort because we have some really creative practices because we operate in the margins as a queer org. But unfortunately, we just can't help everyone. And we try to be super clear about what we can and what we cannot do. Another weird thing comes to mind about the organization. And it's just like, I'm always trying to sort of surface this. And like, we we aren't out completely in all the countries where we work, because it's not legal to do that work. And so it just means that we can't put a ton of information on our website about like the exact countries where we work. And we can't put a lot of local resources for folks on our website. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if you're in this kind of trouble, contact these folks because we don't want to out those folks either. And so that's why we really depend on those referrals from the external organizations to help us reach people, um, because we can't be quite as visible as we want to be to our like client population. And that's just because we're in really tricky territory, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, maybe it, it feels weird, but I think that's a totally normal and common line to navigate between visibility and safety. And I think maybe having a bit more of like a broader umbrella organization lets you fudge that line a bit because you can be like, here we are, but no one knows exactly where we are, but yeah. we exist. <laughs> There's yeah. a thing. Yeah. We won't tell you where. Yeah, we exist. It's great. Have you, um, you guys are probably, there are so many great organizations that are out in the MENA region right now. Uh, like Tunisia and Lebanon are both like real hotspots for like more out organizing. And one of them is called We Exist, <laughs> Majudine. Like yeah, we are we're, here. We're hoping right. to talk to someone from them in a little bit yeah yeah they're great and i just i think their name is so perfect um and like they're just a great example of a kind of like umbrella organization in you know one of the one of the important parts of the MENA region in Tunisia. yeah they're able to do a lot of that sort of that connecting work you know getting people hooked up with the resources that they need i really admire them right no and i but i will say that like this this kind of work that this kind of like not specific geographical location is actually very valuable for uh, communities and countries where they cannot exist, where NGOs cannot exist. Because I know that like, like I mentioned this to you earlier, but in Egypt, there was a very brief moment where LGBT organizing was not quite institutionalized, but where it was at least able to exist in a public setting in a way that like it cannot now. And mm. having having knowing that there's a resource that is in a lot of way like transcending geography in that way is I do think is helpful. I love the way you put that. It's so so true. One thing I did wanna because you you mentioned this, Kevin, and that's something that I really want to like make sure that we put forth is this idea of like what communities within LGBT communities you're serving. Um, and I know you mentioned that there is a focus on trans uh, Arab youth, and I would love to hear more about. Um, how Rainbow Street came to incorporate that within its vision and how you've done that outreach so that you're providing that kind of support. For sure. Yeah, thanks for asking. There are marginalized communities within marginalized communities, of course. And we've found that, you know, it's no accident that um, about half, I think last year was a little bit more than half of our clients are trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary or are some way just like, you know, outside of traditional gender performance. You know, these IT words are kind of tricky because it may not 
be an identity that someone embraces, but it may be very clear that part of the issues that they are, you know, experiencing with their families is a result of their like gender variance. Um, so trans folks, GNC folks, like that's a huge, huge at-risk population within the wider LGBTQ umbrella. And so I wish that we could, I wish that I could speak more to particular outreach. Um, we don't have a lot of outreach in the first place, except for our relationships with other organizations. And so I guess that's, that is one way that we reach out to folks. Like people know about our services, but mostly the reason that that number is so high is just that we are, you know, we, there are so many more people who contact us, unfortunately, than we can actually offer cash for shelter assistance to. And so we have to be very careful to pri to prioritize the folks who really need it most. And the folks who inevitably need it most are, you know, trans and gender non-conforming folks. And so we see like a pretty significant overrepresentation of uh, that population in our client group because um, they just have, they tend to have the highest need. And I'd say another sort of like subpopulation that is very, just has an extra set of needs is um, our refugees, folks who are outside of their home countries. Um, uh, you know, the UNHCR definition of refugee is just someone who has like left their home country um, because of fear of like specific types of persecution. And so queer and trans folks definitely fit within that. And there's something that is, that really sets you back when you're outside your home country, like sure, maybe you're farther away from a potentially hostile family or potentially hostile government, but you also don't have the right to work most of the time. And you are sort of forced to live in poorer communities. And these are not, um, these are communities that tend to be, you know, based on family groups or religious affiliation, which are specifically the kinds of groups that queer and trans folks are trying to escape when they leave their home country. And so people who are refugees um that's another overrepresentation of our client base we definitely we only work with people who are local to the countries where we work in too we we certainly don't want to exclude them because they're, they're very real but we find that when we just go through the prioritization of like who has the highest need right now for this cash assistance for housing refugees i think in 2000 18, over 90% of the clients who we worked with were refugees. Um, and last year, I think that number dropped a little bit, but it's still more than half of the folks we work with are refugees. Right. And I'll also call out just like trauma survivors, but that's that's nearly everyone we work with. You know, we've, we've worked with the San Francisco Trauma Recovery Center to get some training for ourselves, you know, including our field staff and field volunteers on how to serve clients who've experienced some really extreme trauma and how to take care of ourselves as stewards of that trauma um, and sort of build those expectations of taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other into our program work because that's it's really important for supporting folks who've experienced um, such extreme trauma, which is most of our clients. And I'm, I'm really also appreciating how sensitive you are to cultural differences. Something you said was that people might not identify with this particular label, but that things might be emerging in specific ways that are having an impact on their lived experience. And something that I've just noticed that you've said a lot in our prior conversations as well is, is this attention to centering people's agency in how they want to be visible or not visible or how they could be uh, thought of in their stories. And so I'd love to hear more about how storytelling and outreach and how these two, not outreach, I'm sorry, but like talking about these 
issues like in your in your processes with fundraising or with um, media and how that how, how you factored centering people's stories and people's agency within that as a part of your uh, process yeah thanks for asking that's like such a salient topic in this work like it's you know it's weird unfortunately you know for better or for worse we are a traditional nonprofit we're 501c3 we depend on charitable donations and I think it's reasonable to expect supporters of Rainbow Street to you know have to want some kind of understanding of where their dollars are going and that means like you know sharing profiles of folks and sharing stories and showing like this is where the impact goes and this is why it's so important and we need to keep this work going but it's super tricky because we're working with folks who've experienced really extreme trauma to even ask them if they are interested in sharing their story is complicated because mm -hmm. Do they think that they're, do they think that we're going to withhold assistance? Do they think that they're going to get preferential treatment if they say yes? And so like even asking a current client is like already doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and so we restrict it to only folks who are no longer receiving services from Rainbow Street um, because we don't want to confuse that relationship. And, you know, our primary objective is to just like provide good care for the people who are with us. Um, and but yeah, we do reach out to people and we do offer them the option of sharing their story. Um, most of the time they say no, and that's cool. So one way that we have sort of learned to improvise around that a little bit is, yeah, to highlight the stories of the people who do say yes and are excited to share their story, but do it mostly in private settings. If we're, you know, if I'm in a meeting with a donor or if we are hosting an event in the San Francisco Bay Area where we can privately tell a story to the attendees. Um, that's great, because that's a really safe way for that person to feel like they can share their story in a much more personalized way that isn't going to be like blasted all over the internet. And so we've we've worked with our former clients to share more like personalized versions of their stories in those private settings where they feel a lot safer to do so. And we've gotten good feedback from donors and from the participants, the clients on that. Um, there's also a really important group of people who are involved with Rainbow Street who everyone loves to hear from, and it's the activists. You know, we depend on a lot of volunteer activists as case managers, as media people, as just like the people who are actually pushing this work forward in their countries. So we have, for example, right now on our website, we have a pretty in-depth interview with one of our volunteer case managers who... Um, was really generous with his time and shared a lot of detail about his work and why he is driven to do this and how meaningful it is for him to play this role. And that's another way that I really like to show the impact of Rainbow Street because like it's like for sure we are getting really vulnerable folks into like safer situations as much as we can but we're also building this amazing group of activists who are all learning how to flex their own agency as queer people in locations where they may not have thought it was even safe to do so a couple years ago but through participating with Rainbow Street they've really really learned like what they can do as people so it's cool to see that grow and I always really like to share that too. I was really struck by your ability to connect with and to develop networks and with all these activists in different places and what that means both for the fact that that work is being done but also for the fact that by cultivating this relationship you're giving them further opportunities to be able to do that kind of work 
Yeah, thanks for saying that. I think, um, yeah, creating opportunities, that's as much, it's <laughs> pretty much what we're trying to do. Like for anyone who's working with us or our clients, you know, even our staff, we, I'm really hoping that like our paid staff is getting really meaningful um, sort of personal experience out of this too. Thank you so much for joining us today. For everyone listening, um, how can people get involved or how can they support your work? Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. It's not often I do um, like interviews because of the weird like, outness of our organization mm-hmm. and how yeah. I think our podcast be, but... is like that kind of in between ground for a lot of people and we're kind of embracing that as kind yeah. of a low key platform where people can um define what they want to say on their own terms. It's perfect. And you know, I did consult with like a wider team of folks and everyone was super stoked about um being on this podcast. So thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, for your listeners, anyone listening, I mean Of course, we rely on charitable donations. So like rainbowstreet.org, rainbow-street.org. You know, like that's a way that you can become involved as a supporter. If you want to become part of that community, we always recommend, you know, just like start with five bucks a month, start with whatever is doable for you. That is great. But also like we're recruiting board members and we're trying to grow our board so that we can grow into a larger, more influential, more mature organization. So visit our website. There is information if you're interested in being a board member for Rainbow Street or if you have, you know, people in mind, uh, folks who have, you know, we have a definitely a preference for folks who have experienced forced migration, who are, you know, from the MENA region or who like identify this work identify with this work personally as much as possible. But we're also, you know, we're very open-minded about who might be able to make a great impact on our board. So visit our website for more of that info. There's info on our website about volunteering too. That's a great way to get involved. We need, you know, graphic design skills, video skills, writing, translation, hosting fundraisers if you're into throwing parties, um, when we can finally throw real parties again. yeah, so visit the website. There's some stuff on there. Follow us on social media. Um, finally, there's this Pride has been pretty much canceled this year. Sad. There is like this big online fundraiser called Give Out Day scheduled for June 30th. It's usually in April, but they pushed it out um, to June 30th because of all this COVID craziness. And so Give Out Day is a cool way to like engage with LGBTQ nonprofits all over the Bay Area and like you know, make a donation, share about your donation. It's like an online day of giving. Um, so if you're super stoked about Rainbow Street, we'll have some information on our website about like being involved with that day very soon. And we could use a lot of volunteers to help us really amplify our message for that. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. This was amazing. Um, we got connected to, for people listening. We got connected to Kevin through Adam. So thank you also, Adam. Um, no, thank you for having me be a part of this. I'm just, I just feel so honored to be around all of you. And, me too. Yeah, I'm so happy. <laughs> I can't believe the interview is already over. I'm so sad, this was so fun. We can do oh. another one. Yeah. <laughs> we can always do more, Any, as many as we want. Um, so you can all follow us at The Queer Arabs on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook, and email us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Our website is, you guessed it, thequeerarabs.com. Whoa. Whoa.